Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. I just want to say some prefatory comments here. This, uh, this Bible study this morning is going to be a little uh, different, a little weird, not well, maybe not weird, but weird in the sense of out of the ordinary of what we're typically used to. We're going to do a little bit of, 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 of both today in terms of some academic stuff. We're going to learn a little bit today. The heart-stirring stuff is really mostly at the end, but there will be some heart-stirring stuff throughout. So just wanted to, you know, prep you for what we're getting into here, all right? Um, Let's start with a title. I want to preach today, as we do an introductory message uh, into the Gospel of Mark, uh, Judah, who's here. What's up, buddy? Judah wanted to hang out in the service today. My eight-year-old, he helped me land on this title last night. He was kind of like, this is the one you need to go with, Dad. All right, and we're calling it Meeting Mark's Gospel, and I've added officially. Officially. Have you said that, by the way, to someone before? Hey, it's so nice to... That's like a thing now. Officially meet you. I guess there's such a thing as like unofficially meeting someone. But really what we mean by that is I know who you are because of social media. And I awkwardly know more things about you than I probably should. (laughs) And so, or I've heard of you or I've seen you, but it's nice to officially meet you. And so maybe that's kind of your relationship with the gospel of Mark, right? You've heard of the gospel of Mark. You've You've gained some familiarity with the gospel of Mark, but if we're going to journey together through the gospel of Mark and do life really with Mark over the next few months, we should have an official meeting. We should officially meet him, officially kind of have an understanding of what we're getting into and what he's saying. Uh, It reminds me of our marriage conference that we had just a couple days ago, started Friday and yesterday. And it was such a sweet time, Uh, over 40 couples there just gathering together around uh, God and, and, the, and seeking him to work in their lives and, and their marriages. Um, and one of the, the, the reason I have this picture up there is one of the main uh, activities was uh, life at the table together. We purposely sort of scattered the table up so that couples in our church could meet other couples that they knew but haven't yet officially met, okay? And so a lot of official meetings going on at this conference. Um, and we started the conference actually by going around and sort of going over the key questions of officially meeting someone. We said things like, what are your names? And what do you do? And, and uh, you know, when did you meet? When did you get married? Uh, another, there was a, a question that Pastor Jim made a funny comment about it. It was, how many kids do you have or want to have? And he's like, well, I have four. I wanted three. That's what his comment was. It's pretty funny. Um, and then another question was like, you know, a fun fact about your spouse that, that, you know, maybe other people don't know. And so it was just kind of like a general, let's officially meet each other. Now, when you come to the Gospel of Mark, and say we're at a table group here with Mark, and we're going to officially meet him and get to know his book, um, the question would be like, what sort of questions would we want to ask Mark? Or what are sort of the key things that we need to know about this book as we begin this journey? And Uh, This is true of of Mark, but this is also true of most of the New Testament books of the Bible. You're usually wanting to get to know these four things. Go ahead and write this down. This is a great sort of um, introductory um, method to employ anytime you're coming across a book of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. the first question you want to ask is, who is the author or, or the identity of the author? Who wrote it? Who are they? 
Uh, getting some more information about who authored the book can bring a lot more even color to what you're reading and understanding. You go, oh, I see, I see you know, who they are, therefore I see why they wrote it the way they wrote it. Another thing you want to ask is, what's the angle? Like, where is this book coming from? We know who wrote it, but kind of what was the, the perspective that this book was written from? Specifically, we'll say the gospel. Like, the gospels each have different authors, but they also have different angles, even, of who's writing it and who is with Jesus at the, uh, you know, telling the stories that are being um, accounted for here. Another question that's really, really important is, who's... Male was this, right? Who's the audience? Who is receiving it? That was one of the biggest takeaways from the marriage conference is Ephesians 5. Husbands, don't read the mail that's written to the wives, all right? And vice versa. Um, but that's important with the New Testament as well, the, the, just all of Scripture. It's important to go, um, who is this written to? You know, the, the Bible is written for us and for our understanding. Scripture says that all, uh, all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. It's been written so that we might have hope. So God's word is for you and I, but the, the books of the Bible weren't written to you and I. They were unique recipients with unique context. They weren't 21st century Western Americans, for example. And that's a really important piece of information. A lot of times we can bring our cultural lens upon the context of what we're reading. It's really important to, to zoom out for a second. Don't read the scripture in a reactionary way or through your own cultural lens, but to put yourself in the sandals of the first century Christians, classic VBS youth pastor joke, and ask, who is this written to? All right. And then lastly, what is the agenda? What is it that the Holy Spirit has inspired this book to accomplish. So just a great little hermeneutical rule of thumb when you're approaching the scripture. So let's officially meet Mark. What do you say? Good. He's as excited as you are. All right. We begin, as we meet Mark officially, we begin with that first question, which is, who is the author of the gospel of Mark? This is a hard one. The answer is a man named John Mark. John Mark is uh, the author of this book. And this is a, um, this is a conclusion that's been, been made unanimously by early church fathers in the church throughout the centuries. There is external writings outside of Scripture that confirm these facts. There's a lot of other evidence to this as well. But let's talk about who this guy John Mark is. The first mention of the author of the Gospel of Mark... John Mark, is in the book of Acts chapter 12, where we're introduced to this guy who is named John, whose surname was Mark, and he's the son of a woman named Mary. This is really interesting. And this woman, Mary, had the gift of hospitality, and she also had, with you know, that gift of hospitality, was birthed out of this resource she had in Jerusalem of a very large home. Um, and so the scriptures tell us there's this really interesting story here in Acts 12, it shows us, uh, in Acts 12, Peter's put in prison. Okay, he's put in prison by Herod. Herod is just unleashing an attack against the church. Peter goes to jail, and the entire church, they gather together at Mary's house. Isn't that awesome? She's like, come over to my house. We're going to do church. And they gather to pray for Peter, to pray for his release. If you don't know the story, it's really awesome. You got to read it in Acts 20 because the church is praying for Peter's release. Peter gets released because God hears prayer and he answers prayer and Peter gets released from uh, prison. He comes to the door of Mary's house. 
Like I was once in prison, an angel set me free, here I am. He knocks on the door of the gate, and a little girl, they're all inside praying for Peter's release, but like the Lord's already answered the prayer that they're praying. He's at the door, and this little girl, Rhoda, comes to the door and sees Peter there, and the Bible says that she's so excited that instead of letting Peter in, she runs away. She's like, oh my gosh, it's Peter! All right, and she just like takes off. And she goes inside, and here's this, kind of the sad story of this, is that she goes inside and tells all the Christians, Peter's here, as they're praying, God, release Peter from prison. This girl comes in and goes, God answered the prayer. And they go, stop it. And they keep praying. Right? And that's a cautionary tale in and of itself. If we're going to pray big prayers, we should expect a big God to answer the prayers we pray. We shouldn't be surprised at the answer knocking at the door. If this is the God that does say to us even, come knock and seek and ask. And so that's what happens here. And this is the context of that. It says, Peter, is, is, he realizes that he, um, he thought at first when he was being set free from the prison that he was actually in a dream and having a vision. You ever had that where you're like in between sleep and consciousness? And you're like, this is a dream. Oh, no, I'm actually walking right now. I'm, I'm not sleepwalking. I'm alive and my kids need me. Okay, I got to come awake right now. Well, Peter's like in that half state and he comes to and he considers that he's actually really experiencing this uh, liberation and he comes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. And notice this again, where many were gathered together praying. So John Mark, this is the first time we're introduced to him. His mom is the one who has the church in our home. Many, um, many references and uh, early fathers point to, to Mary being the, the, the main like host of a lot of uh, the disciples' ministry and communion. Um, there's some speculation that uh, it was at Mary's house that the Last Supper took place. And so this is, this is a really interesting, let me say this, this is a really interesting uh, insight into who Mark is. We don't know a lot about Mark. We don't know much about his spiritual journey or his conversion story. He ended up writing a gospel, so something happened. We don't know much about how he came to Christ. But listen, here's what we know, and this is more than enough. Mark was the child of a parent with an authentic faith. That's what we know. Mark was the child of a parent with an authentic faith. When I say authentic Christianity, I'm talking about this display here. What's authentic Christianity? Is there, is there a better expression than this woman, Mary, who just says, I'm going to use whatever resource I have, my home, to serve God and his kingdom. That's authentic Christianity. Saying, God, whatever you've given me, I'm just going to give it back to you to serve you and your kingdom. My life is not my own. I exist for you and your glory and your people and your mission. So I'm going to open up my house. And, and man, I, I kind of resonate with this conversion story. Like I had my own journey of like really getting lost in the weeds of life and Jesus rescuing me out of some darkness and destruction but when I think of my journey of coming to the Lord, I, I didn't have this like non-religious background and then all of a sudden coming into faith, maybe like some of you, uh, there's, there's different testimonies in here, but that wasn't mine. My, my upbringing was in a home where my parents had come to know the Lord when I was at a very young age. And so this is like, this resonates with me. I'm just curious, anybody else have this like growing up? Your parents had Bible studies in your house and you were just the little kid like running around, maybe some of you, okay, just a couple of us. So this was really significant for me as a young kid, seeing church modeled in that way. Seeing like, wow, church is a relationship and a community of people doing life together. Wow, this is really cool. And so uh, this seems like this is Mark's upbringing and it significantly impacted his life. That authentic Christianity 
Can I just tell you, parents, there is no greater influence that your faith can have on your kids than living it out at home when no one's watching. Like really being it. Not being perfect, but being authentic. Not putting on a facade. You know, they can tell when you're faking it to other people. But that real authentic Christianity, such a significant witness. Now, okay, this is not spiritual, but it's informational. So I'm going to share it, okay? This is the first mention of Mark. His mom is the, is the host of um, the early church in her home, using her large home for the church. Uh, we have, by the way, we have people that do that. Thanks for opening up your home for community groups. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being like Mary. You're authentic, all right? There is rumor that there is another mention of Mark, that the first mention of Mark, he's not named, but there's rumor that, that a character found in Mark 14 is Mark. And it would be interesting if this really is Mark, because Mark's the one that's writing it. But it tells us in Mark 14, this is like tradition and rumor, that a certain young man followed Jesus as he was being arrested. And he had a linen cloth thrown around his, you know, naked body. And when the young men, the soldiers, laid hold of him, he left the linen cloth and he fled from them naked. That's, that's just, it's only in the Gospel of Mark that this detail is included. And it's like, Mark's like, I'm not going to say it was me. But there was a young man. <sighs> he had a linen cloth. That's, by the way, linen was an expensive piece of, of garment. So it could be Mark. His mother was wealthy. And uh, when he was kind of, it could be that after the Last Supper, he, he had the, the, the guards looking for Jesus at his house. He followed them there to see Jesus arrested. And they catch him kind of in the woods. And they... There it goes, and he flees away, buck naked. Uh, Judah loved that. Um, <laughs> Judah loved that. I shared that with him last night. He's like, that's awesome. That's in the Bible. Um, so maybe that's Mark. That's extra. Make sure you put meticulous notes about this detail, okay? Now, the, the story continues. We learn more about, about Mark because he goes from being this young man raised around the things of Jesus. He comes to faith in Jesus. Um, seeing it through the faith of his mom. And then the Lord begins to give him great opportunity. This is what happens. The more you follow Jesus, I'm telling you, follow Jesus authentically and watch him open doors of opportunity for you to serve him. Watch him do it. I want to serve him. Just follow him faithfully and watch the doors that he'll open up. And so this happened for, for John Mark. It tells us that in Acts 12, that Barnabas and Saul, this is also the apostle Paul. He's also referred to as Saul in the book of Acts. They returned from Jerusalem, and when they had fulfilled their ministry, they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this is kind of cool. This young guy who, who has had his own history with Jesus and has come to faith in Jesus, he now gets invited to be a companion and like a, a help to the ministry of Saul and Barnabas. It tells us a little bit more about this. In Acts 13, um, Saul and Barnabas receive a special church planting mission calling. The whole, they're fasting and they're, they're ministering to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart to me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work to which I've called them. So God sets a calling, calls them out, these apostles. And so they go out on their calling and it says that they had John with them as their assistant. So that's, that's a pretty cool thing here. John Mark goes with them and he's not, it's important to note, he's not an assistant apostle. He's an assistant to the regional manager. It's really important to point out that detail. All right. Anyway, he's an assistant. He comes along as a, as a servant to help them along the way, um, to assist in the ministry. Mark is as vital, 
John Mark, he's referred to John and Mark uh, interchangeably. He is as vital to the ministry that God is going to accomplish as Paul and Barnabas are. It's a team effort, right? We know that. Brittany and I knew this. When God called us to plant the church, we're like, okay, we have a part to play in planting the church. We're one part of the body, and the Lord is going to bring all these different people into what God is doing here. Um, you guys probably know this, but every morning there are people that come to assist in the work of the ministry that happens here on Sunday. And it's such a key and valuable piece. Without that piece, we, we don't have church. Without Mike being in the back, bearing with all my slide changes that come in at 9.30 a.m. and taking the time to edit these things and make these things, without the setup team getting here to assist in the work of the ministry, you know, it's a group effort to do what we're doing, to seek what God's doing. Such an important piece of ministry is service and ministry of those that are willing to serve the Lord. And so that's, that's John's opportunity, assisted to the apostles. And he comes to serve alongside of them and support them. Now, it's what makes what happens next with John Mark so difficult for Paul. We're talking about the value that someone who's assisting the ministry can bring. You guys know the story, potentially, of John Mark and Paul and Barnabas, but it tells us this. It goes on to say, so he goes along with them, but Acts 13.13 says, Now when Paul and his party set sail, so it used to be Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, but now it's grown to a, a, you know, apostles party of five or something like that. I don't know how many, but now it's a party, all right? It's a fiesta. But like a lot of people, you get the idea. No more jokes. Set sail. They set sail from Paphos. They came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John, this is John Mark, it says, he departed from them, returning to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why. Uh, we don't know why. John Mark, he gets this great opportunity. Maybe you've done this before. You get, you're excited the first day, and the second day, you're like, what did I sign up for? <laughs> okay, like, all right. I, I said, God, you're calling me to a church plan. I'll do it. And then, like, week two, you're like, setup team's hard, okay? Um, so we don't know the exact reason surrounding why John departs. I don't want to say that he bails, because that's inferring something on him that we don't know. Um, there's many speculation as to why John potentially left. Uh, could it have been that he was kind of this young guy that's never been out on these radical journeys with uh, Paul and Barnabas, and he's a little homesick? You ever been homesick before? Like, I'm homesick right now. I want to go home right now. I love my home, you know? And so that, that's a very relevant uh, potential reason. Uh, potentially, the, the, another speculation was that maybe it was like a heart issue, because he gets invited to go along with Paul and Barnabas, but then the group gets bigger, and he used to be like, maybe it was a heart issue, like, I wanted to be one of the main guys, and now I'm just one of many. That can happen in a church, where people, they want maybe selfishly certain, like, roles and, and, and privileges, and, and that's not, by the way, a good reason to come alongside of a church. That's not a good reason to join a church. We join a church, all of us, to serve Jesus. That's it. Not for accolades and notoriety and, and, and special perks. We do what we're called to do. And in this case, maybe there was like, hey, it was a group of three, but now it's a party. And you kind of feel like, I'm not, I used to be one of the three, now I'm one of the seven, you know. And so it could be that. That's some, some speculation. Another could just be fear. Like he's like, I am not cut out for this. And, and that's okay. Uh, that happens in a church plan as well. People are like, oh, cool, a new church plan? I love new things. It's like, well, okay, no, it's going to be hard, all right? It's a lot of work, and that's Okay. God moves people on to, to new journeys, to, to find places that um, better match their season of life. Uh, nonetheless, we don't know why he left, but here's what we do know. 
Paul was not happy about it. Paul did not appreciate it. Um, it tells us this later on, and I, I got to point out this, I forgot to mention this, but John Mark is Barnabas's, that's really annoying to say, he's his cousin. So there's family involved here, okay? Uh, it goes on to say this, that after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back now and visit our brethren in every city, where we, this is chapter 15 now, where, we, where we've preached the word, and let's see how they're doing. I love this, by the way, picture of ministry. Paul's planted churches, he's established elders and leaders in those churches, and now he's going to come back around, circle back, and check on them. You know, this is discipleship, not just, you know, go into all the world and make converts, but no, make disciples, develop them. How are they doing spiritually? This is, you know, why we have community groups this is how are you doing? Not just are you saved? Do you know Jesus? But are you still walking with him, right? That's what Paul is trying to get at. So he goes, okay, Barnabas, let's do this. Let us now go back. Barnabas, it tells us, was determined to take with them John called Mark. He's like, sure, let's go. And I'm going to bring my cousin. Is that cool? And Paul's like, the guy that bailed on us a couple chapters ago? But Paul insisted. So you ever been in a conversation like this? You're determined and they're insistent. Ever had that? We just did a whole marriage conference yesterday. You don't need to worry about it, okay? Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had, gone with, and had not gone with them to the work. Um, this is a tough one. You know, I, I, can, I, I could probably resonate with both people in this situation where maybe if there's reasons why Barnabas le- or why John Mark left, you, you kind of feel bad and you go, well, I understand. Hey, let's give you another chance in grace. And then you have Paul that's like, listen, I tried and it was unreliable and it messed with things and we can't, that, we can't you know, risk that happening again. And, and so you, you kind of have both people. It's interesting. It's not really, uh, there's a lot of debate about the division between Paul and Barnabas here. I don't believe this is a right or wrong situation. I think this is a right or left situation. You ever been that with a, been in that situation with a person? It's not that one way is right and the other way is wrong. It's that I think we should go this way and you think we should go that way. Those are the hardest situations to deal with in relationship. Preferences. It tells us this, though. Unfortunately, the contention became so sharp between Paul and Barnabas that they parted from one another, and Barnabas took Saul with him. He's like, I'm sticking with family here. I can't compromise this relationship. And, and, but, but Paul's like, but I got a calling, and I can't, I can't bring him along and, and potentially risk him met, like making the ministry harder because he's going to bail again. I can relate to that as well. And, and he sails to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and he departed, being commended by the brethren and the grace of God. So, so they, they, they part ways. Um, this is, you know, this is not how it's going to be in heaven. Let's just say that. Okay, like in heaven, our petty preferences won't divide us. But here on earth, sometimes this happens. And sometimes you're at a stalemate with someone. And can I say, sometimes the best way forward is to split up and go separate directions. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that's how you endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Sometimes that's what God has. And it's unfortunate that it's the case in a fallen world, but this is often how God sometimes will move people on. Um, think we, we work better. Sometimes it's an issue of like, we know we need to unify and fix this, and this is petty. And sometimes it's a major issue, and that's okay. Uh, that's why there are so many different kinds of churches here in Boca Raton in South Florida. Because God's doing all sorts of different things. And, you know, you can bring those churches together to pray and ask God for the same things. 
But, you know, there's, there's only one steering wheel, right? <laughs> and so it gets difficult when you have multiple hands wanting to set the course. So, so there, there can just be some complications with that. Now, here's what I want to point out. Regardless of the circumstances, we see this guy, John Mark, who authors the Gospel of Mark. He is the, he's at the very center of this contention and division. Paul's like, nah, that guy bailed on me. He's not coming again. Paul's like very like rigid and like, no way. Um, and Barnabas is more gracious. Man, he's family. He messed up, you know. Here's something really interesting that, uh, that we learn at the end of, of 2 Timothy. This is, I want you to notice, this is at the end of Paul's life. This is at the very, we don't know if Paul has days. Um, we don't know if he even has like hours. He certainly doesn't have weeks and months left. He's like, I fought the fight. I finished the, he's finished his race here. This is prior to his, his own death. And he says this, get Mark. Bring me Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for ministry. Isn't it, regardless of the circumstances, how divisions happen, isn't it interesting that somebody at the end of their life, they look back on those things that used to be the biggest deals and they go, what, what was I doing? Just bring him. That's, that was so stupid for me to be so like upset about that. And so it's just really interesting to think about that. I've definitely had that where I look back on my life and go, why did I make that? You ever done that? Why did I make that such a big deal? And it, it was where we were at at the time. But there, there's something healthy about looking back and going, Lord, help me not do that again. Um, so just an interesting insight there. Now, uh, this is the end of, of Paul's life. A good question to ask is like, okay, so what happens to John Mark? I mean, clearly he ended up writing a gospel. So there's this whole issue where he bails on Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is like, sorry, Paul, I'm sticking with my family. I'm going to go with him. Something really interesting happens. Uh, notice this. This is written by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5.13. Paul says, she who is in Babylon, many people think he's saying here, the church that's at Rome, the elect together with you, greets you, and notice this, and so does Mark, my son. So Paul's like, I want Mark out of here. To the end of his life, he's like, why did I do that? That wasn't nice. Peter, okay, listen. Peter knows what it's like to bail on the Lord. Peter's a guy that's blown it. He's messed up. He's run away from Jesus before. And so he who's forgiven much loves much. And so he goes, I'm going to adopt this guy. Now, was it like a dig at Paul? You know, Peter and Paul, you know, they got this thing. Like, who's the more epic apostle, you know? I got you, man. I'll protect you, you know. But, but notice the heart of Peter. I, I see Peter just going, come here, bud. I, I know what it's like to blow it. And, and Paul's going to write in Galatians 6, man, if anyone among you is overtaken by a trespass, you who are spiritual, if you're really mature, you're not going to reject the person that blows it, but you're going to seek to restore that person. Let me restore you in a spirit of gentleness, considering myself, lest I also fall into the same temptations. And Peter's like, I've, I've, I've done the same thing that Mark has done. And that's just, this is so important for a church to embody this heart, isn't it? Like, I need grace so I can give you grace, right? Like, I'm a mess so you can be a mess. Like, I know who I am apart from Jesus, so you can come as you are apart from Jesus, and we can all go to Jesus together. This is uh, Peter's heart. It's a really cool thing. Now, this relationship becomes very parental and paternal. As, as you even see the language here, he says, Mark is my son. We don't know much about Mark's dad, if he was a believer, alive or not. Likely not. 
in this case, where Peter says, I'm, I'm kind of adopting you spiritually. I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be a, a mentor, a fatherly figure to you. Now, this is an important piece of information. Because Mark writes a gospel about Jesus. Think about this again. As the son of Peter. Who was closer to the life of Jesus than Peter? Think about that, up close and personal. So this is the next thing that, that's important to write down about this book, which is the angle. That's the author. But the angle of this book, many scholars agree and believe, there's a lot of, uh, of, of evidence of this and testimony of this from the early church, that the Gospel of Mark is authored by John Mark, but it's Peter's perspective of the life of Jesus. So you have four different Gospels. We know this, right? Matthew, what else? Good one. What's the next one? And John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each gospel presents a different angle, a different perspective of Jesus. Matthew is written from a Jewish perspective. Matthew the Levi writing about how Jesus has come to fulfill the Torah, to fulfill the promises of the Messiah. The King of Israel is here. That's Matthew. You get to Luke. Luke is a great gospel. Luke is like this um, crowdfunded project by this guy named Theophilus. People think he was Theophilus, but he was a really good guy, all right? And, uh, and Theophilus, he is, he, he is the benefactor of this research project that Luke conducts. He pays Luke to go investigate this man who claims to be God. And then you have Luke the physician, who, who Paul, I love Paul at the end of the life, uh, at the end of his life in that verse, he says, Luke alone is with me. I love that. He's like, Luke alone is with me, the doctor's here, yeah, all right? No offense, Dr. Noss. Um, but, you know, he, he writes this real meticulous work called the Gospel of Luke. And then you have John, which is written to behold the glory and the divinity of Jesus. But Mark has its own unique angle. The Gospel of Mark is so special because it's written from the angle of one of Jesus's, if not Jesus's best friend. This is so important to keep in mind when we're reading the Gospels. That these aren't just like speculation, passed down stories. This is Mark sitting down with Peter, who was there, who could also compare those notes with Matthew, who was there, and many others of the church that watched these things unfold. And, and, and he's writing down an eyewitness account of what they saw. And one of the best evidences to the fact that you know it's not fiction is like, the mistakes of Peter that Peter would maybe, like, if you were just trying to make this stuff up for your own selfish gain, you probably wouldn't include the things like, you betrayed Jesus. Or that, like, when he needed everyone to, to, to pray, everyone was sleeping. You'd probably make yourself look good. But there's no way to fudge the story, right? There's no way to change it because everybody knows what happens. And this is that eyewitness account that Mark is writing down. It's so important. The Gospels come from that perspective of someone who was there. There's, there's a lot of evidence to, uh, and, and even reasons to why we would conclude that this is outside of tradition and, and early testimony. Um, one, one of my favorite um, examples of this, of why we know this is Peter's perspective, is, well, you have one, that Peter's the most mentioned guy. Of course, Peter would mention himself the most in his own gospel. Um, another thing that's interesting is nothing in the gospel of Mark involving the disciples, nothing happens without Peter there. So every, Peter's like, I was, in other words, he's like, I was there. I saw this happen. And, and he even uses like really 
vivid detail to describe some of the things that wasn't even a form of literature around back then, like a kind of fiction where you said like the grass was green or there were this many fish in the net. Peter, like he's recounting the story as if an eyewitness who was there, who's taking in the scenes in his mind, remembering the air, remembering the feel of the grass. It's really cool. One, one of my uh, last favorites uh, kind of examples of this, of how you know it's Peter's perspective, is there is a this is just fun to do if you want to do like some Bible nerd stuff later. There is a speech that Peter gives in Acts chapter 10 that is, scholars have said, it's an, it's an abbreviation of the Gospel of Mark. Like if you took it and overlaid it on the Gospel of Mark, you have the story of Mark summarized by Peter's speech. So, so there's, there's much evidence that shows that this is Peter's perspective. A, a couple uh, other Nerd out factoids, and we get to the good stuff in a second. Write this down. This is really important to know about this uh, gospel, Peter's gospel, the gospel of Mark, his perspective that, that, that Mark is penning. Maybe Peter's dictating it to him. We don't know if Peter's alive at this moment that it's penned. It's possible. Uh, Mark was Peter's interpreter and his, almost his secretary at his old age. Some really interesting facts about the gospel of Mark and um, some of the things we could love about it. It's, first of all, it's the earliest gospel. It's reliable. Um, some people date it as late as 65 AD. Some others date it as early as potentially 50 AD. We're talking about like within 17 to 25 years of the life of Jesus. This is not stuff that's like hundreds of years later. This is, this is a document that's written fresh off the press of, over events that happened like 20 years ago. You know, let me ask you, do you remember Y2K? Did any of you kind of remember like it was yesterday? You know what I'm saying? I remember my mom packing the survival box. I remember she had, Dad, do you remember this? My dad's losing it. Um, I remember she had, like, I remember in the box, I would go through it because it was like, I was, it, was in, it was in our bathroom for some reason. I'd just be like, what's in here? You know, like MREs. Like, it's, we're totally ready for the apocalypse here. Meals ready to eat. There were waterproof matches. Those were, they were. I played with them as a kid and they were gone. But, um, but I remember, I remember being a kid. I was in sixth grade and I remember like the, the turn, it's coming. Like, that, that's a pretty, you, you could sit, and if we all sat down and we compared what was going on, especially if we were in the same family or the same world, we'd have pretty accurate details of what happened. I want you to think about it. There's been likely less amount of time here for this gospel from the life of Jesus. We're talking maybe 17 years. So really cool to think about when we come up to a book like this. This isn't just some random sacred text. This is eyewitness account. It's the earliest gospel we have. It's also, another reason why I love it, it's the shortest gospel. I love small books. Aren't they the best? I said that to Pastor Jim uh, Gallagher, who was preaching at our marriage retreat, and we gave a book out to everyone. I was like, one of my favorite things about your book is I read it in a day, and that is a miracle. All right? So Mark is the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters wrong. You, it could be read aloud in a, uh, an hour and a half. It, it's, it's a really concise and short gospel. Um, Part of the reason why it's the shortest gospel, this is a really important detail, is the gospel of Mark is the shortest because it's also the quickest gospel. This is why it's so short. It's the quickest gospel. What do we mean by that? Well, 
the best way to understand what this, what this idea is saying is um, the, the most commonly used word that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark, it's used 40 times, is the word immediately. 40 times in the Gospel of Mark, immediately Jesus this, then immediately that. Like, I, I love... Uh, maybe it was because paper was expensive, and Mark's like, I don't have all the resources. We just got to make this quick. Or he was in a hurry. What, whatever the case is, like, if you're trying to get, like, I, I want the most concise um, and, and, and succinct, succinct, but also efficient and detailed gospel that's not going to take me forever to read, gospel of Mark. Because in, in, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is always, like, moving from here to there, from here to there. Um, I just love the way that Mark tells the story. He's almost ADD. He's like, I'm here, and then Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did that. It's pretty awesome. So it's the quickest, the, the fastest moving gospel, um, scene to scene to scene to scene. Um, and lastly, it's the simplest gospel. What I mean by that is the gospel of Mark is uniquely written to those who have a non-Jewish background. And so not that Matthew and Luke and John, for example, are complicated and not easy, um, but the Gospel of Mark especially is simple for someone that doesn't have a Jewish background. It's written to explain the story of Jesus to, to someone that doesn't understand the customs of Israel. And so a lot of times in Mark, he'll use like different language to explain what was going on in Israel. You could say it's a, it's a gospel written primarily to Gentiles. Now, I think all of these reasons, particularly the, the second through the fourth, this is another interesting factoid for you, is... This is one of the main reasons why, I don't know if you knew this, but the Gospel of Mark is the most translated book in the history of the world. Now, we know the Bible, of course, is the most, like, obviously it's in the Bible. But the Bible, let's stop for a second, the Bible is a library of books. The Bible is the, is the most translated book, but it's the most, what makes it amazing, it's, it's, a, it's a library of books. But within the library of Bible books, the Gospel of Mark is the first book, like nine out of ten times, when you have a missionary group that goes to an unreached people group that speaks a language, and, and they're trying to teach them about Jesus, who has come into the world to save them as humanity. The first book that they begin with, in our culture we say, hey, read the Gospel of John, right? That's what we always say. But the tradition of the church throughout the centuries has been, we need to get them the Gospel of Mark, it's the simplest, it's the quickest, it's the shortest, it's the ADDest, it's the earliest. Like, let's get them the message of Jesus in its simplest form. It's the most translated book. And, and there's some incredible ministries all around the world that are, you know, reaching their attention of, of global missions on these, these groups of people that a majority of, the, of American missions is not even thinking about. A majority of American missions today globally is thinking about the places we've been before, we're going to continue to build. Uh, there's a church I follow out in California called Reality Ventura, and they have, uh, what I love about their church is they've geared their entire missions purpose around the unreached people groups. They're like, well, if nobody's going to these people, we as a church got to give everything to reach these people. And one of the ways they reach them is they bring Bible translators, and they translate the Gospel of Mark. It's super, super cool. Super interesting stuff. Now, this, this would get us then, we're almost there, guys. You're doing great, all right? This would get us to the audience. So we have the author. It's John Mark. We know a little bit of his background. It becomes the, the son in the faith to Peter. And he writes from Peter's perspective. That's the angle of the book. It's such a fascinating, short, quick book with all these details. It's the clearest book as well. 
But what's the reason this book is written? I mean, who is receiving this mail? This gospel, again, written in in the time of 50 to 70 AD, is written to Gentile Christians, we mentioned that, who are living at Rome at the time. And they are under the dominion and the leadership and self-proclaimed lordship of Emperor Caesar Nero. Um, I mean, just basic Roman history. We know that Nero started well. I mean, he, he was rather peaceful when he began. What was the turning point in Nero's life? Because um, he, he really, like, he went off the rails. Psychotic, evil, demon-possessed, potentially. Um, I mean, he ends up murdering his own mother and his two wives. Should have gone to the marriage conference, Nero, you know? Um, thanks, Judah. Um, you're going to sit there every week. Um, I mean, genuinely, just horribly, horribly wicked. The, the big turning point that a lot of people point to is the great fire of Rome in 63 AD. The great fire of Rome is a fire. Here's what's interesting. Some people speculate that Nero himself started the fire, but it burned down 80% of the city. Imagine 80% of South Florida. Um, the way that Nero led through, this is a very unique thing back then, is whenever there was a national crisis, what some people would do is is blame another group of people. And that's what Nero did. He blamed the Christians. He said it's their fault. Uh, They're the reason why Rome is burning. They're not worshiping our gods. And this is the punishment for that. And so he singled out the Christians, and he began to systematically murder them, and not just murder them, but gruesomely kill them, feed them to animals. We know the Colosseum, we know the the movies that portray some visions of this, but this was the life of a Christian. This was the life of a Christian, not even 30 years after Jesus has resurrected, and they've committed their lives to him. I want you to understand this, that for us, you know, one of the things that we, by the way, this is not something like even though the church has been common to experience this, it's, it's, we, we look at our country and we go, God, this is, this is a, a blessing that we don't face things like this. And, and our desire is, I don't want my kids to have to face things like this. But this is the norm for many, this is the world that, that some Christians, this is all they knew. They, they didn't know the idea of like, oh, we're good, hopefully persecution doesn't come. This is, this is what faith is to them. Like talk about a cost of following Jesus. You get the knock at the door, are you a Christian? I mean, courage that's needed, the, the faith that's needed, the cost of following Jesus was life or death. Jesus taught about that. He said, this is what real Christianity is. It's costly. It's going it's to cost you a lot. Not, you know, not just like your behavior, but your whole life. That's the whole point is I'm presenting myself as a living sacrifice to you, God. I belong to you. The scriptures tell us this. This is an interesting reminder because I wanted to just say, despite what we, um, the the freedoms that we have in our country and the protections we have, you know, that's not the case for many Christians around the world. For a lot of Christians around the world, this is also the reality that they're born into. Whether it's the Middle East or somewhere there in the 1040 window, 
Um, do you know what the scriptures tell us? In Hebrews 13.3, it says that we need to remember the prisoners as if we're chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Um, I, I've heard one pastor say it this way. It's not the American church and the persecuted church. We are the persecuted church. We're the one body. So if one part of the body is suffering, we're all suffering. That's why my dad was so passionate as, as we began this year, as you went out, you probably noticed he was handing out these, these calendars to pray for the persecuted church um, around the world. So, so I want you to hear something. There are Christians that have heard the gospel of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has arrested their hearts. They've seen the goodness of God displayed in his love and saving them and rescuing them. They've heard who God is. They, they found their purpose for their living and they're suffering for it. And Mark is going to write them a gospel. He's going to bring them a message. And that's our last idea here, which is the agenda. What is the agenda of Mark? Written to that context, Christians... In a context of difficulty and persecution, Mark writes his gospel with a twofold purpose and agenda to announce the news of Jesus and articulate the way of Jesus. To announce the news of Jesus, that's the agenda, and articulate the way of Jesus. That's why this gospel exists. Even there, we read Mark 1 1 in the beginning. And it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what what Mark's gospel is all about, announcing the way of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And this is what Mark has for these Christians. Isn't that interesting? In the situation that they're in, the thing that he has for them, whatever you're going through as well, the thing that you really need is good news. That's really what they need. Facing what they're facing, Mark brings them the good news of Jesus. That's what the Christian faith is all about. I like the way Tim Keller says it in his book called Hidden Christmas uh, about the announcement of Jesus' arrival. He says, advice is counsel about what you must do, but news is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says that it's all up to you, up to you to act, but news says something else, somebody else has already acted. This is such an important distinction to make when we talk about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not good advice. The Christian faith is a proclamation of good news. It's news. The Christ, so Mark's like, I'm writing to you, and I'm not just giving you, I'm giving you an announcement. I'm, I have an announcement to make. I have news to bring to you. Advice is, is about you and what you need to do, but an announcement is what's already been done. That's what Mark brings to these people. He brings the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Now, it's really interesting the way that he brings them that gospel. Are you looking there at Mark 1.1, the verse that we read on the way in? In telling the gospel or the good news of Jesus, he, he uses descriptive particular words. You know, back then I kind of alluded to it, but paper wasn't as much of a common use uh, um, material. It was more expensive. And so, you know, you didn't do like the whole preface thing and like, you know, thank your grandma on the next page, you know. Like you had one shot. You had very few words to use. Every word counted. Every sentence mattered. And so when he starts with that sentence and introducing his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, every word that he's using is inspired and intentional. 
And, and what's really interesting is the three specific words he uses to describe the gospel of Jesus. He talks about the beginning of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, and then he says the Son of God. So beginning, Christ, Son of God. Some really interesting interpretation of this verse has uh, concluded that as Mark is presenting his gospel, what he's doing is kind of like what uh, like the Star Wars movies do and a lot of movies do nowadays. You ever seen a movie where like there's multiple storylines going on at once? And usually the end of the movie is those three storylines converging into one. That's what's happening here in Mark 1. There are three storylines, three places even, that Mark is writing about. The first place is Eden. Is Eden, the Garden of Eden. This is the first storyline that Mark is tying together here with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, he says, and I love this language he uses, he says, in the beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. That, he's not saying, okay, now I'm beginning my gospel. No, no. He is connecting the news of Jesus to an event that happened thousands of years prior in the creation story. As Mark is connecting his gospel to Eden, he's communicating that his gospel is a message. The message of Jesus is a message of restoration. A message of restoration. Um, the gospel of Mark, it's really cool, it's filled with creation imagery. Every other page has some sort of detail about the creation story that matches it to the creation story. Uh, one of my favorites here is, is Mark 1, 9, when Jesus is baptized. It came to pass in those days that Jesus is baptized, for, uh, comes from Nazareth, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And look what happens when he's baptized. Immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parted, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, this is, this is literary um, genius here. This, this is, is reminiscent of the beginning of all creation where you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is speaking. He's speaking life into existence. You have the Son, the Bible says, present even there at creation. All things are made through him. And then you have the Spirit like a dove hovering over the waters. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And so Mark is doing that on purpose. He's using creation language, creation imagery, because he's bringing a creation gospel. That's one of the storylines. It's a storyline of creation. Uh, one commentator said it this way. For Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, I love this, new creation is at hand. That's awesome. Mark's like, in the beginning... Jesus. That's what he says. He's connecting his gospel. It, it, this is as momentous as God speaking the world into existence. It's more so. It's God speaking the truth about who his son is. This is the good news of the gospel. It's a, a message that connects to the Garden of Eden. It's a message of restoration. You may have heard this before, but this is one way to understand the story of God throughout history. You have four main parts. You have creation. Where in the beginning, God created everything good and great that we enjoy today. From relationship, to community, to creation itself, to great coffee. I had a carne asada yesterday. Creation. It was good, right? And the Lord said it was good. I mean, everything in that realm. Harmony between man. Harmony with God. This is the creation story. But we know how things got spun out of control 
through sin, and you have the fallen nature of creation. We can call that decreation. Things are, are spinning apart. Things are falling apart. There's a brokenness to the world. Everything that's wrong with what's around us, we know that this is not the world that God created or not the state that he created it in. And so when, when, when Mark is announcing Jesus' arrival, he's saying new creation is here. Through Jesus, God is beginning to recreate the broken order of things. There's a hope one day where the Bible says at the end of Revelation that God is going to bring a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And it's really cool because Paul uses this phrase to say that's what a Christian is today. You're a new creation. So like we're a foretaste of what's coming. There's new things coming. That the way that things are, especially these Christians that are facing the worst tortures imaginable, you're facing decreation, you're facing the fall, but the world will not always be fallen. Brokenness will not win. God in the end will have the final say and all things will be restored. There's hope in that. There's hope, especially when you see the bad guy win. Especially when you see the broken thing get worse. Brokenness won't win. Jesus will rule and he will reign. That, that's what, what, Paul, or what, what Mark is bringing. He's bringing uh, one storyline here that starts in Eden and that is fulfilled in Jesus and one day ultimately fulfilled in the restoration of all things. This is also a message, another storyline here though that, that Mark is bringing is the gospel as a message of salvation for Israel. He says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, um, fun fact, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Like in the phone book, Christ, Jesus, it's not, it's not a thing, okay? Um, Christ is, is not a, a part of his, his, his name, it's a title. Christos in the Greek from the, the Hebrew uh, Mashiach, which meant the anointed one, the promised one, the one that God spoke of, the one that we were waiting for, the one that God promised even at the fall that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. He will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. The first promise of the Messiah that's echoed all throughout the Old Testament, the one that Israel was, was waiting for, the Savior that they were looking for. And now we know when Jesus came, and this is kind of the Christmas story, they weren't uh, expecting Jesus to come the way he came. They're expecting a conquering king, the way Jesus is going to return. Instead, he came lowly, he came humbly, and they didn't expect him to establish his kingdom the way he did, sacrificially. More so than that, they didn't expect him to bring the kind of salvation that Jesus brought. They, they were hoping that the king would come and save them circumstantially, but their greatest need wasn't circumstantial salvation, it was eternal salvation. And so Jesus comes, that's what the gospel is for all humanity. It's the good news of great joy for all people that God has promised to Israel that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus, that your sins can be forgiven. <laughs> that Jesus goes to a cross, he dies, he takes upon himself your sin and your crimes and your brokenness so that you can be righteous in him through faith. He rises from the dead to defeat your greatest enemy, death itself. Gifts you with eternal life through your trust in him. You don't have to stay separate from God in your sin, you can be saved. You can be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, it's not just an acknowledgement of things, it's a belief in your heart. You say, I'm not my own savior, I need Jesus. This is what Paul says about Jesus. He says, this is a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
And Paul, who was the best apostle out there, says, and I'm the chief sinner. I'm number one sinner. This is, this is, by the way, what's needed for salvation. Did you know that? Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing that we need to be saved is need. What do I need to be saved? Need. You need to know that you can't save yourself. You need to know that Jesus is your Savior. You need God. You need to know that you need him. And Paul knew his need, but he knew something greater than his need. He knew the provision for his need, which was Jesus. I may be a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. And he came to save me. And then lastly, we'll invite the band up to close us out here. Um, Rome is the last piece of this puzzle that Paul is writing to. There's a third storyline. Jesus is the Christ. I love this. The Son of God. There's a third storyline that Paul is weaving in there when he says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. A couple details about this. Uh, Jesus here is presented as the one bringing the inauguration of a kingdom. Now, it's important to know that the word gospel, which is like the most used Christian word, I use it all the time. I love it because it's what Jesus is all about. It's what the Christian faith is all about, the good news of Jesus. The word gospel, before it was used in you know, Reformed theology circles, before it was used in church circles, before it was a category of music, gospel, before it was that, the word gospel wasn't a religious word. Did we know this? The word gospel was first and foremost a political word. It was a word used by the Roman government themselves, by the empire. Um, what, what would happen is anytime there was a new Caesar that was born, or, or anytime, listen to this, when a strategic and decisive military victory was won by the empire, the, the, the nation would send out a herald, uh, here's the word for it, you ready? An evangelist who would bring the good news of the gospel to the surrounding world to proclaim, that, not to give advice, but to say, hey, I've got good news. A new king has been born. A new king has come. The king has won. They've won the victory. You don't have to fight the battle. You're just a citizen of the kingdom. You just get to rejoice in the fact that the king won. That's what a herald would do. They would bring the gospel. More so than that, did you know this? Caesar's, Caesar had a lot of self-proclaimed titles. One of his favorite titles for himself was the Son of God. Caesar was divine. He wasn't just the elected official. He wasn't just Nero. He, he was divinity himself. He, he was the very Son of God. He was connected in divinity to God himself. So how beautifully controversial and subversive is this that when Mark writes his gospel to these Gentile Christians living under a phony savior who called himself the son of God they're familiar with this gospel language and he goes guys I know you're suffering but I have good news the real king has come he says Caesar is is, is a parody to which Jesus is the reality the son of God the real true reigning son of God is here you can rejoice for his kingdom has come. The Bible says that Jesus, when he came, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is his gospel. Here's his good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes to reinstitute, to inaugurate the kingdom of God here on earth. And he proclaims it like an evangelist. He announces it. Mark is announcing it. The king has come. 
The king we've been waiting for, the king that's going to come and make all things right, he comes. That's the news. The king has come. He's come to save. He's come to restore. He's come to rule. He's come to rule over his enemies. He's come to rule over the enemies that keep us from him. He's come to establish his kingdom. There's a day coming in Revelation. The Bible says that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of God. They're all going to bow to Jesus. Every knee is going to bow. Caesar, he's dead. Every other world leader with their kingdoms and their little phony empires, they're gone. But there's one king that rules and reigns forever, and that's Jesus. He's alive. And he is, listen, he's not just establishing his kingdom, he's advancing his kingdom. So, so you read the Gospel of Mark, and it's all about, when we get into this, it's so exciting. Because in the Gospel of Mark, we, we see not only that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, but he begins to expand his kingdom in such unique ways. Here's probably the most famous verse from the Gospel of Mark. The Son of Man, the King, doesn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is how the kingdom of God moves forward. Isn't that amazing? What a contrast to Nero. How do I advance my kingdom? Well, through conquering and military conquests. But Jesus goes, no, the, the way of the kingdom is laying down our life. Jesus goes, I'm going to lay down my life for my enemy, for them to be reconciled to God. This is the, the, the news about the gospel of Mark. I'm so excited for the next few months, like I said, to spend our time in this book and to learn more about this way. You know, the kingdom of God is here. It's right now. It's within you, Jesus says. And, and we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And God wants to bring his kingdom to your life, and he wants to advance his kingdom through your life. And that comes through following this same way of Jesus, following the way that he laid out for us. That's what he was doing in that time. It's what he's doing today. And what a cool thing that we get to be a part of. Jesus, you're advancing your kingdom and you're using my life to do that. Amen? Well, I'm excited for the months ahead. Let's stand up and we're going to have a closing song as we go out into our Super Bowl Sundays. Before we have fun with our friends, let's just take a moment to close. And we, we talked about that idea of needing God, knowing that we need God. And, and so we're going to close reminding ourselves that we can look to God He's the one that our help comes from. This is why Mark brought this gospel. You had Christians that were stuck circumstantially. There was nothing but hardship all around them. What did they need? They needed God. They needed the news that he brings to their life.